Welcome to the Film Seekers Podcast. Mainstream, art house, vintage and documentaries. We bring news and reviews of big screen productions to your earbuds. We seek films. Now relax and enjoy the show. Show. Yes, we are back again. This is the Film Seekers podcast, and we'll be looking at the 63rd annual London Film Festival program, including some of the big bangers, as well as all the individual cool films that are in the strands. We'll also be giving our expert choices alongside my very special guest today, who shall be revealed momentarily. Enjoy the show. Hello, my name is Neil Ramji. Good afternoon, good evening and good night, wherever you may be. And I am back again, yes, uh, hosting the Film Seekers podcast. It's been about 18 months since uh, we did the last podcast. And I apologise if anyone was waiting for a brand new episode. We are trying to get some more guests on board and actually revamp the whole affair. Uh, But today I am joined to go through the annual London Film Festival programme, the 63rd one in fact, by a very special guest. He is a programmer and a film writer and he is Paul Farrell. Paul, you do programming, you do a bit of writing. Where can people sort of see some of your work? What outlets? Uh, Best ones to check out are Vague Visages, um, Movie Notebook and Hyperallergic. Okay, awesome. And indeed, I'm sure you'll have some more names to add to that list by the end of the festival with (laughs) some of the upcoming reviews and some of the stuff that you've already seen. So let's dive straight into the programme. We've got this thick tomb in front of both of us at either end of the phone here. Um, Mm -hmm. A weighty tomb that it is this year. So we're in the 63rd London Film Festival. And um, I've got a little bit of spiel here from uh, its uh, high grand master. Um, I think it's Amanda Neville, the CEO, and Trisha Tuttle, who is the festival. Trish. Yeah, good old Trish. <laughs> first yeah, first love Trish. Terms. Um, it, so, you know, as part of the film festival, they're quite conscientious. Where London sits, it sits after Cannes, it sits after Venice, it kind of sits overlapping Toronto Film Festival as well. And obviously Berlin is kind of like the start of the year I guess and some of that overlaps into some of this so I think where London positions itself just as we get into this what we call the Oscar corridor don't we where some of the prestige mm. films now start to rear their little ugly heads um, you get some of that, that as well so I, I think where London's position is it's kind of almost perfect it's not quite your greatest hits uh, but I think that's kind of ends up in Glasgow ends up with like a, a greatest hits but I, I think for variety wise don't you feel the London Film Festival gives that opportunity to, to, to see so many different films in so many different categories Greece. Yeah, for sure. I mean, as you're saying, it is kind of like the last showcase of the year before Oscar season turns around. So a lot of the galas, a lot of the big name sort of stuff, there's no sort of, or at least there's very little sort of um, speculation about it here and there. You know, you've already got a lot of tapes coming out of Venice and Toronto, but that's why the strands are so great because while everyone's going to the galas, there's just so much going on. And as you say, there is so much here this year. Um, how many strands are there this year? I think there's uh, five, is there? Something like that? No, no, I think there's more, actually. Let's have a is look. there even more? Let's have a look at this uh, weird thing here. So 
London Film Festival, let's divvy it up. For anyone who's not been to a film festival or even London Film Festival, uh, the way that they like to decide it is that everything has a, a wee strand and then at the top of the strand they will have like their gala, so the big film that kind of headlines each strand. So we've got Love, Debate, Laugh, Dare, Thrill, Cult, Journey, Create, Experimenter, Family, treasures um and then on top of that we've got little competitions going on so you have the first feature competition as well and then also some uh, special presentations on top of that as well so some of those may be mining the archives films that are really really hard to track down um upscales you know remasters that sort of thing and i think one of those is the the juniper tree with bjork her mm. first feature film that she starred in before everyone saw her in uh, dancer in the dark the Lars von trier film so there was obviously a hell of a lot going on here and um, they've obviously added a lot of films since this book in front of us was published so um, at the time it was published they had 229 feature films 41 documentaries, 7 animations, 13 archive restorations and 7 artists moving image features um, and there's also on top of that 116 short films so there's a, there's a wealth of content playing at London Film Festival and obviously you and I no, I'm never going to get around to seeing... No, I'm going to have to take back my original statement of having seen like, a good few. I've seen nothing, apparently. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I've never laid it out like that. I know, it's mad, isn't it? And and, and, and within all of those feature films, documentaries, and, and so on and so forth, um, we've got um, 78 countries being represented at this year's London Film Festival, which is great, you know, bringing Fantastic. that wealth of world, world cinema to uh, an English-speaking audience. Fantastic. Um, 28 of them are world premieres, 12 of them are in, uh, international premieres and there are going to be 28 European premieres at the festival, some of which have obviously done their big world premieres at Toronto and Venice uh, not too long ago. And the, the other cool thing as well is that 40% of all films are directed or co-directed by women, which is uh, a big talking point that has been on the festival circuit for quite a while mm. now. Especially uh, after um, Venice as well, when it was the convex with so few female filmmakers were part of that festival. It is just sort of like you, you do need more and, and, and you would have thought by now, because we've been talking about it for such a long time, and, and, and Paul, you may be new to this, but on the Film Seekers podcast, we kind of do champion women directors and women in prominent roles, whether that's cinematography, etc., off the screen. It's just a weird thing that this is still an issue for film festivals to get their head around. Obviously, at Cannes, they tried to tip the balance there a little bit. And it was weird because they had a, was it a shot of Agnes Varda on the, on the beach as part of their promotion. that was that was the main like promotional part wasn't it yeah because they were playing um agnes by varda right and that's sure that surely said to everyone before they even announced their program oh we're going to be representing women you know at the forefront of this year's competition we've taken on everybody's criticisms but lo and behold, their 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 representation was pretty poor. They made some inroads. I think it was an additional like a couple of percentage wise for, for for women directors and women co-directors. You know, it wasn't there really. And it's sad that we're we're continually talking about this at mm. film festivals. Who should be leading the charge, really? But I do think there is a strange culture around sort of more insular um, international film festivals where a lot of the excuses that came out of um, Salat Dennis or one of the pro curators from Locarno was talking about how much he had heard from other film festivals where 
programmers are saying, well, you know, we're just following where the good art is. And if it's with these people, then we have to program these people. Our hands are tied. But that's just excuse making at this point because we've known time and again, it's been proven time and again, that there's a wealth of uh, filmmaking creativity from across the board. You can very easily represent a great diversity in your program. There's nothing really holding you back. And in fact, with that same Locarno curator, his name is uh, Greg DeCure Jr. Um, there's a great interview of that on Hyperallergic if anyone wants to check it out because he was programming um, the Black Film Strand for the 2019 festival. So. And so, so clearly there are people within the industry who acknowledge the fact that, mm. you know, there, there there is this great talent out there, but I guess it, com- commerciality and, you know, yeah. having these network ties with certain studios, etc., they're being forced, as you said, to put on certain films by certain directors to keep mm. those ties uh, going and keep those good relationships going. Otherwise, you know, you won't end up with some of your big bangers. They'll just take them away. I think it's a, a bullying strategy, really. Um, mm. Something that actually Disney uses quite often in the commercial sector. It's like, if you don't play my film in your two biggest screens, then you're not going to get any other exactly, yeah. content. And it's 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 sad, really. Um, and I understand the argument that's, can we look beyond gender or race or sexuality or all these other characteristics of someone, you know, almost like a, a colorblind sort of um, approach to just putting good art on the screen. And I think that is ultimately where we need to go. But I think where people lens that from the start, it's kind of like these men have already uh, occupied these positions of power. So they've already got a head start in the game, if you see what I mean. Exactly. Yeah. And there's such a repetitious sort of like calling of uh, these same kind of artists as well. So um, my whole take on it is the fact there is such a profusity of great art out there from all sorts of walks of life from everywhere really and it is just about you have so much material coming from every direction that really the onus is on a programmer to make sure there is a great representative program being made and that's really the job I feel it's not that the greatest art are being made by say these particular kind of people mm-hmm. it's just that there is so much of it but as you say there is old relationships there are also like legacy relationships with filmmakers say for instance the Venice and the fact that they get Roman Polanski back that's yeah. because Roman Polanski has been going to Venice for so many years and he's a big name there you know it's one of those things where it's like it, it, the effort's just not being made I don't think to, to look outside of one's own bounds yeah and, and it's the fact that I guess with these legacy relationships it's the fact that no one's got the gall to turn around and go actually we're not going to include you just this year because we're going to give mm. open the door to someone else and um, to, to kind of step up and do that I think is is it would be a great thing but uh, in terms of ruining their p- potential program with other titles yeah. that may may be lost in the shuffle could be p- particularly dangerous i guess in some respects but let's let's get into um some of the films that are actually playing at london film festival let's go with the opening night this is the big one that everyone is sort of looking forward to it's got big names attached it's british as well they always like to open with or close mm-hmm. with something that's quintessentially british and this is the personal history of David Copperfield. Yes. Armando Iannucci. Uh, well, he's very exciting, yeah. So it was very strange because the, the initial sort of reaction that came out of this, I can't remember what festival it premiered at, but it was actually quite tepid. People weren't that in love with it, but then it played at TIFF. And now it's the usual sort of festival cycle of it goes from one extreme to the next. And it isn't until uh, actual release that we get a good look at it. But I'm very much looking, excited, uh, looking forward to this. And I might actually come to the opening day for it. 
Okay. Um, and it's the only film playing, so it is a big decision. But yeah, so what, what do you think about it, Neil? I, I really enjoyed The Death of Stalin. I followed uh, Iguchi's yeah. work from his comedic ch- um, chops with On the Hour and all the Beeb stuff that he did in the early 90s, uh, along with Morris and Coogan as well. And I think, you know, his working partnership with Bainham was fantastic then. I sort of lost a little bit of Iannucci when he went over the Atlantic to go and work on Veep. So, you know, ah, right. that wasn't, I think, I think maybe I was like looking at other stuff at that point, but I, he did bring me back with the death of Stalin, which is great satire of, of the communist regime. And um, yeah, it was a great step for him cinematically as well. Like stylistically, I thought it was the first time he sort of like broke away from that sort of freewheeling middle of the room, almost one Trier-esque sort of shooting style, you know, that's almost verite sort of style. Yeah. And, and it goes to prove that he is not just, you know, known as, as a great screenwriter and he has an eye for detail quite clearly. Mm. And, and he can he can frame his characters in certain ways that can accentuate that comedy underlying some of these very dark materials that he, he deals with. I, I, I distinctly remember he had a series called Time Trumpet as well, um, which which went went very, very dark. Not quite Chris Morris dark, which I think is kind of <laughs> really out there. But he, he did uh, put his foot in the water there and... I, th- I think that uh, with the personal history of David Copperfield and looking at the subject matter, I think we're into for something a little bit more lighter. Yeah, I think it's certainly going to be a lot more, um, I suppose the word used is exuberant. There's something very staid and sort of uh, rotting about the death of Stalin. Well, I, I, as much kind of bravado as it had, from all the kind of press materials that I've seen of uh, David Copperfield, this is something that maybe stylistically sits more in the vein of someone like Danny Boyle, I, I would have thought. Like, especially with yesterday, it just came out recently, that kind of very sort of poppy, sort of bright sort of energy. Yeah. And, you know, you got Dev Patel, of course, leading it as well, which I, I think at this point hasn't necessarily been the kind of Iannucci leading actor before. So you've had someone like uh, Peter Capaldi, for instance, I would I would put as the kind of quintessential Iannucci lead, mm. the kind of very fast-talking, sardonic, cynical sort of person, whereas you've got bright-eyed Dev going <laughs> around with his big grin. I mean, it's definitely a new, a, a different change, yeah. Yeah, what do you think about the, um, the fact that, you know, this is a film set in Victorian times based on Charles Dickens' novels and they uh, approached it with a colourblind casting. Do you think that sort of takes away some of the authenticity uh, behind period setting of having this essentially Asian man in, mm. in Victorian times? Do you, do you think that's going to affect it sort of aesthetically? Um, aesthetically, I'm not sure, really. I mean, the one, the one thing I think about, especially with like heritage names like Dickens and Shakespeare and, and you know, people of this name, is that there have been many adaptations. And they're the kind of works that are a ripe for adaptation. You know what I mean? Right. So for me, for it to take this sort of route is more reflective of our time, our period. Yeah. And I think that's what it should be, really. Because I've not really considered it from an angle yet. Okay. I just really love Dev Patel and everything he's done so far, to be honest with you. I, you know, I wasn't even a big fan of Lion and I really liked him in the lead role in that. Right. So I'm just generally excited. Okay. And that's not really an answer to your question, but no, 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 no. It's, it's an interesting take on it, though. I, I, he was in a Michael Winterbottom film this year as well, called The Last Wedding or The Last Marriage. Uh, okay, yeah. It didn't get a huge amount of traction, and then obviously Patel he uh, 
rose up basically because of Danny Boyle, interestingly enough, in um, Slumdog mm. Millionaire, um, in, in a very, very commercial role. And it's interesting to see actually him collaborating with these left of centre directors as well, but still having his foot in, in, in the water with some very poppy stuff like um, Hotel Mumbai's recently come out in cinemas yeah. and on Sky as well. And that's that's not got particularly good reviews. I think very, very tepid reviews from, from what I've uh, read. But it, it is interesting that he is pushing himself. And I, I like the fact that actually Patel is sort of solidifying himself as essential British actor and it kind of go, it goes it goes away from your typical British actor and we talk about the Rich Boys Network um, we talk about people like Eddie Redmayne you know that sort of ilk people class him as an, a national treasure do you think that that, that would ever become a, a label that we could ever put on Patel? If we haven't already I mean there's something about Patel that's very sort of bright eyed very sort of enthusiastic that I personally key into. As I say, talking about Lion, and as you say, he's not had many um, sort of breakout roles here and there in his career in the last few years, and Lion was 2016. Yeah. But I, I can see that being the thing for Patel, because if he isn't already from Slumdog, and that whole sort of Skins generation who sort of grow up to become sure. these young, beautiful, leading actors of their time, yeah, I, mean, I suppose it's just because we don't see him in too much British media at the minute, I suppose, like compared to, say, um, Eddie Redmayne, he seems to make the festival tour, like, year in year out yeah but, but yeah. also you know eddie redmayne uh damien lewis is another example as well mm. I, I think there's an element of class behind there as well and a little bit of privilege that perhaps allows them to play prestige roles the, the kind of project they work well sort of play into that so you know, eddie redmayne is very connected to tom hooper and that's the kind of films that have uh, explored his career forward there's also the relationship with um the harry Potter universe which is like the biggest franchise in our um in our culture, mm. uh, the British culture, but wasn't one that was necessarily known for its uh, multi-ethnic representation, you know? Yeah. And it still retained that sort of status. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm on board for the film, mainly because Simon Blackwell, who has collaborated for many years with Iannucci, with The Thick of It, and uh, you mentioned uh, Peter mm. Capaldi earlier on as well, they, they write these very, very acerbic and biting uh, screenplays that do make me laugh in probably all the wrong ways. I will get a, a, eventually get round to it, but you, you think you might be able to shift yourself and go to the opening night? God willing, I will be able to. But I do think it's one to catch, especially now. As you say, you mentioned Chris Morris and Steve Coogan. I mean, they've got two films coming out as well. You mentioned Michael Winterbottom as well. Mm. So Coogan and Winterbottom are collaborating again for another film that's also a gala, yeah. uh, which is Greed, Yes, uh, which I'm really looking forward to. That's supposed to be a send-off of the Top Shot owner. Right, and can, I believe yeah, that's yeah. the case. Tell us the story of the film Greed, uh, by, directed by Michael Winterbottom. So Coogan's in the lead role. Yeah, so he's basically playing a sort of uh, uh, Richard Branson type of sort of built himself up from the beginning, made like an international company. And the whole thing apparently is set around uh, the rise of his career and culminating in a massive Roman-themed orgy party of expects. Um, the, the key image that he's in the press material is Coogan, a massive set a false, blaringly white teeth, kind of Simon Cowell-esque right. grimace. Um, yeah, it's all sort of about just the kind of um, avarice and the kind of hollowness behind that of an empire that's continually on the fringes of breakdown, you know, um, which I think is quite relevant, I suppose, to where we're at with Brexit as well. It's the idea of trying to keep up a strong front internationally. Do you, um, do you think that this is telling us anything that perhaps the, the, the public conscious doesn't already know about uh, certain people 
in uh, prominent positions like this? I'd certainly hope so, to be honest with you. I can't see it being out of uh, Winterbottom's uh, wheelhouse to do so. Right. And Coogan, of course, has always got a great casting for that because as much as he says he's a northern boy, he always is kind of like a BBC boy. That's yeah. what his sort of like with demeanour always is. So, yeah, what's the name of the character now? It's Greedy McCready. I think that's kind of thing. And that's going to be um, the tone of the film. I think it's going to be very sort of knowing, very thinly veiled, very biting, as you say, with uh, much like Ian Uche. Yeah, I mean, I mean, so there's, I think, there's a classic cast alongside Coogan here. So you've got um, Shirley Henderson, who I think is underplayed. Oh, fantastic. Absolutely everything that she's in. She is really... She, she actually drives a lot of films, but she does it so quietly because she's not a showy performer at all in anything no, I've no. seen her in. Um, and we've got Isla Fisher there. What do you what do you think about that inclusion? I think that's a little bit out there, but um, yeah, Isla Fisher in a in a Michael Winterbottom film. Who would have thought it? I can see that. I mean, I don't really know what kind of like British features Isla's been in, but I mean, we know that she's a very good comedic performer mm. uh, with stuff like Hot Rod and even. Um, I know it sounds kind of good, but something like Now You See Me, uh, which I actually quite liked her in because she seemed to be the only one that was kind of aware of how ridiculous that film was as she was in it. Right. But there's also other people. I mean, there's going to be, lots, I think, lots of like cameos with people like David Mitchell, Asim Chowdhury and, and right. the like. Okay. I think it is going to be a very much a kind of... Um, I don't know if you saw Night of Cups a few years ago. Uh, that was a Terence Malick film, wasn't it? That was the one. So you've got Christian Bale who's just going to LA and the Hollywood scenes every party to party right and you just get an absolute cavalcade of just sort of like vaguely familiar sort of mid-level hollywood faces the kind of people that would like approach you for work i can see this being the same sort of energy really the kind of clingers on the kind of hangers on the people who want to get to emperor coogan's throne you know mm, mm. which i think is going to be a lot of fun cause- so 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 we, we think we're, we're on board for greed it might be you know it might turn out to be a nice little knockabout film well absolutely i mean it's, it's coogan and winterbottom uh, the that they've done the past, I mean, uh, 24-hour party people, mm. uh, one of my absolute favourite films. Like, I remember seeing it at university a few, that was the very first time I'd seen it. Um, and of course, I only knew Coogan from Partridge at that point, but somehow Winterbottom's always able to activate his kind of pomposity okay. and the kind of the egotism that's always like, kind of like the, the surface tension of his performances. Okay. And this just looks like another kind of like really well fit. And we might even be just too familiar of a territory for him, but it's still one that I very much enjoy. Well, he's no stranger to controversy. Obviously, uh, Nine Songs being one that uh, stands out oh from God, Michael yeah, Winterbottom's back catalogue. <laughs> um, so we, we shall see. We'll shall see. But we're both on board for greed. Now, let's. we've talked about the opening night gala. Let's, talk, let's go right to the end of the festival. Um, so the closing night will be Sunday the 13th. And this is The Irishman from Martin Scorsese. <laughs> now, obviously, everyone's bleating on about this this let's give you everyone a little bit of background to this so it's a, a film that's been commissioned by netflix going straight on to netflix it clocks in at oh i haven't got a time here but i think it's is it three and a half hours it's three and a half hours i think it's three and uh, three hours 26 minutes if you want to split hairs is, is there an interval in the middle of this can we go and get ice cream <laughs> absolutely not <laughs> <laughs> Okay, but um, Gorsese, he's one of these people that we we were talking about earlier, brings some sort of heft and weight to your festival. You've got to have the latest Scorsese at your uh, your festival to be uh, deemed as credible, surely. And this is the international premiere as well. I mean, it's only played uh, New York Film Festival last week in 
in fact. Right. So this is going to be literally the first time anyone's going to see it anywhere but in that festival. It's going to be great, to be honest with you. I think any film that's over three hours long, sign me up. Okay. Uh, but that's the other sweet spot. Everyone makes that joke of it being either has to be 90 minutes long or like 240 minutes long. I think it's four hours. But yeah, anything you can just sort of sit in would be great. Okay. Uh, the, the great thing about actually the closing film at London Film Festival uh, for the last few years you don't actually have to be in London to see it. The real good thing is actually this film is being syndicated across the whole of the UK in various independent and art house cinemas and across the Everyman group as well. So if you have an Everyman cinema in your vicinity, then you will be able to see The Irishman at exactly the same time that everyone else catches the premiere in central London, which is awesome. All about inclusivity here. So that's that's great. Let's let's move on to um, another gala film, one of the sort of top-notch ones that, is, uh, that a lot of people are talking about. Released through Lionsgate, this is uh, Rian Johnson's Knives Out. Ah. I've got a wee clip here. Let's, let's play it. I'm Detective Lieutenant Elliot, and this is Trooper Wagner. We just want to ask a few questions. We understand the night of his demise... The family have gathered to celebrate your father's 85th birthday. How was it? Hello. The party? Pre my dad's death? Oh, it was great. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to request that you all stay until the investigation is completed. What? Can we ask why? Has something changed? No. No, it hasn't changed, or no, we can't ask. I'm gonna live till I die. You think one of his family walls walls. killed? Is that what you're suggesting? Now that sounds terribly exciting. I won't play the whole thing, but that is a little bit of a clip from uh, Knives Out from Rian Johnson. Uh, what do you think about this one? What, what's going on in this film? It's a, it's a very rich man, and he has lots of um, hangers-on. Is that, isn't that what it is? Oh my God, yeah, like greed. We've just found a thread. Um, <laughs> so apparently from what I've read, uh, what I've seen is that it's, it's very much leaning on a whole sort of uh, Kentucky Fried mur- mur- murder mystery, but kind of in the style of uh, Agatha Christie, that kind of like classic whodunit, uh, which is very interesting. I've also heard like allusions to Murder, She Wrote, which, are, which I am here for. I'd absolutely to love, love to see big screen. Fan of uh, Murder, She Wrote. Right here. Oh, that would be so great. Um <laughs> But yeah, one thing I'm really excited about, actually, I talked about this earlier in the year, was Daniel Craig's pivot to these sort of southern-bound roles that he's taking. It seems to me he's trying to like hard move away from Bond, which is obviously he's expressed the kind of disdain for the role. So he's had this in Logan Lucky, where he's doing a very thick, very playful accent. And I think his character in this thing is even called Benoit Blanc. So it's very tongue-in-cheek, I think. Craig has always said that he doesn't really like doing the Bond thing and it feels like he's he's mm. locked in on the some sort of contract that, that he says it one moment and then when he comes out he goes oh I was only mucking around and kidding um, <laughs> he, he, Logan Lucky was the Soderbergh film wasn't it the, the heist it was, film that yeah. goes wrong he, he's also tried to do a couple of other things as well I, I distinctly remember him in the um, failed follow up to Denny's Gamza Egruven's uh, uh, Mustang film which was one of my favourite films of 2015 which was uh, about a group of uh, young girls in Turkey 
Um, and then when that broke out as being, I think it was the Oscar, uh, foreign language Oscar winning film for that year, she made a follow up English language film called Kings uh, with Daniel Craig also in, in that role. And it was around the, the LA riots time and it, it bombed completely because no one wanted to di- distribute it or anything at all. And it sort of got this very, very quiet release. And then I think it even didn't even get a cinematic release in the UK. It squeaked onto VOD. And that was it about a year later, which is which is disappointing because I think he's okay in the film, but the film is a mess in itself. Um, <laughs> but hopefully we might see a different side or that good side uh, that that Craig can play to to in in Knives Out. What do you think about Rian Johnson? Obviously, all the f- Star Wars fanboys have got their knives out quite literally. For <laughs> yeah, um, um, they've got their sabers out. Um, it was strange on the trailer. If anyone at home seen the trailer, uh, one of the credits to come up is uh, one of his films, Looper, but it's also so for a murder mystery that's being styled very much like Cluedo to see from the director of Star Wars, The Last Jedi, there's a strange kind of gravitas that um, is brought to this film by that. I mean, I'm a big supporter of Rian Johnson. I really, really enjoyed The Last Jedi. I think he's a very, um, he's very bound to making big swings, like emotionally and sort of thematically as well. I, I think he's very unabashed in his kind of messaging, but politically and thematically. Right. And from what I've heard out of TIFF, this is very much a, a film of our, or of, of America's moment. It's very much concerned with um, their relationship with South America and with the Mexican border. Okay. So uh, I think this film is going to be at once very much a gas, but it's going to have a, a lot of think pieces are probably going to come out about this one, I, I do feel. You, you think it's got a decent subtext behind it? It seems to be, and that's always been sort of uh, Rian Johnson's. I mean, if you, even if you want to call it subtext, I mean, he's very sort of unabashed about what he wants to tell people in films, but I, I can see it being very layered, Okay, for uh, sure. I know a lot of people are very, very excited about it. You know, Rian Johnson is very much a, a modern-day cult sort of director, I guess, because Brick was quite formative with people at, at a young age, and then they've now come of age, I guess, that they want to see more stuff like this. For me, the the, the film Star Wars, I didn't have a problem with it. I, I can take mm. it all um, all this kind of franchisey stuff. Personally, I just feel like he made that film so he could make films like Knives Out. It's a profiling thing. In, in, in well, that said, well, I do think he, was, he had a, a good bit of skin in the game with it because he, he's reportedly still got three more Star Wars films. Oh. Uh, that was a bit of contention that came out around Star Wars The Last Jedi because he wanted to build a trilogy that was in the wider galaxy, if you want to call it, of Star Wars. Yeah, something from Star Wars The Last Jedi. At the end of it, when a kid uses in a very Disney-esque way the Force to bring a broom to his hand, um, that was supposed to be sort of his nod to what he wanted to do with the wider universe, which is explore the idea of the Force and the Jedi as being something more anonymous, more broad. There's more stories out there than just the Skywalker one. Mm. So I'm not sure if it was something that necessarily he just did for the clout. I'm sure he's very happy that's what it afforded to him. And every project he's done has always seemed to come from a very personal place. Yeah, I get that completely. You can see like he's got his fingerprints definitely all over that Last Jedi thing. And there's certain decisions mm. made in in that film that you think, oh, hang on a minute. Did, did Kathleen Kennedy sign that one off or did you just yeah. push that one through? I think he must have known about the backlash that was going to come his way. I, I think he was very prepared for it. I, I think whatever you do with that franchise, you're always going to get something, <laughs> aren't you? You know, there, there's yeah. no, no right way about that. I know people, certain people hate, uh, what was the first one? One called the first Jedi or something. The first one in uh, episode what is it? Episode seven. Force Awakens. Force Awakens. I know a lot of people hate that as well. So, uh, which is incredible because JJ Abrams is like the quintessential sort of Star Wars fan writer. Essentially, mm. he's just sort of re- recreating these like original plot lines um, and just trying to keep an air of mystery. Uh, you get, get lends a lot of attention to the Sith. I think 
personally in these films. I think he does like he does like that kind of thing, and I think it's going to return to that in the third one. I can't remember what it's called. What is it? The the lap. Rise of the Skywalker, I think the new one's called. The new one, I can Im- nine. Yeah, I, I can imagine the, the title crawl, the iconic title crawl for that one, starting up with, ah, Ray awoke. It was all a dream. Like, <laughs> I could see totally retconning Last Jedi. But anyway, that's not playing the festival. Forget no, J.J. Abrams. Let, let's forget all of these people. Personally, I feel there wasn't enough lens flare in the J.J. Abrams one. But um, yes, let's, <laughs> let's, let's move away. The, these films get enough uh, voice as they do. Let's, let's talk about one of the prestige titles titles playing and I'm not really into this one I, I I did offer it to my mum and dad by the way are going to the festival for the first time which is super super cool um, can I get to meet them you, you can try if you I know. want to meet your parents Neil I really want to I want to see where this all came from I, I've, I've forced their arm to, 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 to pick some films and go and so they've picked actually two very cool films the, the film we're going to talk I'll, I'll talk about them in a moment but the film that I did offer them first I thought might ease them in a little bit is this film the mayor's london gala the aeronaut starring eddie redmayne and felicity jones himesh Whoa. patel and tom courtney now this is what i would personally call it uh, one of these titles that is definitely uh, playing up the britishness uh, the quaintness and it's a prestige title about um is it two scientists that build a hot air balloon to try and check the weather or something and then they, they the Felicity the, Felicity Jones is not deemed good enough to go up with him but they persevere and they go up in this hot air balloon and it's I, I don't know it, it, it's some kind of like sort of parish fate sort of aesthetic going on with it, it, it it's, yeah it seems to be something something with kind of a dash of I don't know it, it feels like something that would be made by the people who directed Harry Potter films I feel like this is like what would happen in between Betty Haller's part one and two yeah. that's the Harry kind of like, Harry go up in a balloon just just well, this sure. is it yeah, yeah. this is uh, McGonagall the early years <laughs> well um, let's let's hear a little bit about the aeronauts we still sure this weather will hold because my instinct is telling me instinct has no place in weather prediction you're lying to me every reading that I took this morning was quite clear Miss Wren there are no advantages in concealing concerns we are trapped here no matter what you say this pressure is changing faster than I'd anticipated and so it begins. And so it ends as well. That was another bit. <laughs> Thank you very much. The aeronauts there, which, you know, you can hear by the RP being delivered by the two main actors there. It's it's that sort of film. It, it has a really weird lens to it as well. It's funny you mentioned Harry Potter. It has this really sort of surreal sort of, I don't know, um, very, very soft lens going on from what everything I've seen mm. of it. it. It just doesn't, it, it's obviously not trying to be cinema verite. Of course it's not, but, uh, but it's, it's trying to, I don't know, play into this very, very uh, uh, broad fantasy sort of market. And I, I don't know, it's, it just seems strange to me. I, I, I'm really not interested in it at all. I'm not particularly interested in it either. I, I think it's one of the things as well is that it seems to be cribbing a lot from Victorian literature that kind of aesthetic or at least a Victorian sort of aesthetic in general right. and I think I associate sort of Victorian literature especially with people like Wells and Conrad and that kind of thing with having a kind of deeply we're going to get into it now like a kind of psychosexual energy of, kind of, yeah that, it, well it kind of comes from like the repression of the era you know it's, it's okay. the kind of stuff that people like Alan Moore sort of writes yeah. about with the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and that sort of thing so when these movies come out that are kind of um, very clean they're very scrubbed up and washed up and yeah. 
all that sort of stuff. I, I, I'm immediately kind of put off by them. It's a word I really want to not use, but it's the one that's always pushed into the idea of a heritage film, you know, the yeah. idea of sort of like looking back. But I, don't, I, I feel so divorced if that's this kind of country's heritage. I think that's my take on it. Okay, well, look, coming to London Film Festival and inevitably uh, when it gets its release, I think it's being distributed by E1 uh, in Curzon Cinemas <laughs> at some small window between now and Cats, I think. So um, it will play... <laughs> Yes. Okay, so yes. It will it will swallow up that little market before the, the main event come Christmas time, and then I believe it's jumping straight onto Amazon streaming platform in the new year. But um, I'm sure it will get a little bit of a cinematic release at your your silver screen, so you can go and get a coffee and a and a biscuit as well. Very inoffensive fare going on there. But I tell you, a film that I'm really really looking forward to is um, something that I'm not really in tune with, and I didn't grow up not being American uh, with this person and it's Fred Rogers um, who is the central figure Mm. in A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood starring Tom Hanks and this is Marielle Heller's film and it sort of looks back at uh, uh, Fred Rogers I want to call him Ted Ted Rogers was a a TV host in the the UK that's why I keep calling him Ted Rogers but he's Fred Rogers definitely Fred Rogers Um, anyway Fred Rogers was known to millions and millions of American children as being almost like a surrogate grandfather um, guiding them through life and through his TV show of just showing people, children especially, just how to be nice. Is, is that a fair assessment? That seems to be it. I mean, there's definitely a kind of resurgence of an interest in him. There was a documentary last year, which the name of which escapes me, that was a big hit. That was a Netflix release, I believe. Um, I think he takes this sort of space, at least in the UK, as far as I know, of the kind of Bob Ross figure, okay. uh, the kind of a oasis of, of pleasantry and just sort of calm and sort of positivity that I think a lot of people seem to have been key into now. Right. I mean, if, if we look at the wider program, or at least what I've watched um, from the press training so far, there are a lot of films that are very meditative uh, about sort of apocalyptic times, about end times, because, you know, there's all sorts of anxiety about climate change, sure. about extremism in, in Western politics, all that sort of stuff. So I think someone like Fred Rogers exists now, especially as we rediscover him through the internet, as this kind of ideal, this sort of this father figure that we can look for for reassurance. Yeah. And I think that's the major appeal of the film. Okay, well, yes, amongst all this doom and gloom that's surrounding many of these titles, it's always good to have mm. a ballast in the middle of in the middle. Absolutely, of it. please. It's two weeks. We need to, we need some. <laughs> so, Fred Rogers is your man. I'm I'm actually really looking forward to it because, in, in mm. a weird way, I think Tom Hanks is kind of my surrogate grandfather when I need a bit of comfort <laughs> and I'm sat there on my sofa with my wagamamas on a Sunday. I, I pop on a watching Captain Phillips, watching <laughs> handle the situation. You're like, go get him, or, or even doing doing the dance on the piano in big or um, uh, trying, to, <laughs> trying to bed a fish lady you know these are the sort of films that I go to yeah just saying that sorry just looking back you've made me just think about his filmography and it is bizarre like stuff like Dragnet and um, Joan the Volcano the 80s was a very strange time for Tom Hanks and he seems to have emerged as someone who he was the only person in the 80s who probably wasn't doing cocaine and yet his films are the most kind of cocaine driven it's, it's fantastic but anyway please as you're going to say no, you're going to tell me what are the films your parents were going to see no, well, at the we, festival we, we, I think, I think we'll, we'll, we'll brush on to them momentarily I'll just skip through a couple more of the gardens I'll, I'll leave that as a little tantalising what's Mr and Mrs Ramji going to see um, <laughs> right um, Greed we've already covered that's a, a headline gala I'll skip over a couple of these because we're not going to go through the whole programme but Hope Gap is a film directed by William Nicholson uh, Bill Nye 
and Annette Benning. Once again, uh, this is a film about marriage breaking down. Um, Bill Nye is very well versed in these sort of films, actually. Mm. Um, and I guess in some ways he is a surrogate grandfather to a lot of Brits um, it, it, on screen. We had him in, a, in About Time and he's always like the calm voice of reason. I feel I feel I like Bill Nye, but he seems to play the same sort of person in every film I see him apart from the Underworld series where he was uh, oh my god yeah well that was completely off the wall that was fantastic yeah. Um, but yeah he's definitely like this father figure in British culture I, I, even stuff like Shaun of the Dead where he plays the kind of distant cold sort of domineering father he, he somehow seems to be able to um, enable it with a kind of humour kind of lovable sort of almost uh, redeeming humour which I, I think is sort of yeah it's definitely his bread and butter but the person I'm more excited about in that is definitely Annette Benning. Uh-huh. Um Annette Benning. I'm a massive fan of and I saw one film in the festival The Report which is also in which is being sold as a kind of Adam Driver um, Oscar vehicle essentially and Adam Driver is fantastic in it but Benny is definitely the reason to go and watch it she seems to be able to um command a very subtle sense of like um, especially in this one because it's set against a 10 year timeline um, right. a, a very subtle command of aging or a kind of uh, being able to imbue her roles with a, a pre-existing history mm-hmm. which I think is actually a lot harder to find in a lot of actors but if you're going to see Hope Gap for Annette Benning any day of the week and also Josh O'Connor oh, who's yeah. also in it who, who's also the star of um, oh, God's, I'm, God's, it's, own it's God's Own Country which is another fantastic film yeah, yeah. Um, it's a great really great cast for that and he was in that film with only you um, oh yeah yes of course yes, uh with leah costa that's her name yes uh which ha- which went right under the radar but i've heard excellent th- things about that film and that's definitely f- a film that i'm going to be programming uh with my uh my day job in the near future um, <laughs> um uh, let's let, let's hear a little bit about the report who directs the report by the way do we know do we know Scott Z. Burns, who is most famous for collaborating with Steven Soderbergh right. as a screenwriter. He's written films like Contagion and Side Effects. Okay. Um, he's also written The Informant, which is kind of a, a very similar thing to the report. But this is his directorial debut, I believe, um, which is, yes, yeah, very exciting. Well, it's, it's always um, exciting when a director comes out of the shadows, isn't it? You know, they've worked the game for so long and now, you know, they can put their mark on something. Well, yeah, it's one of those things. It's probably a very glib remark. I mean, I, I only saw it the other day, so I have to think about it more. But it is a media how much of an influence his collaboration with Soderbergh is. It is very, um, it's a very agile film that jumps between, as I say, it's over a decade. It's set from immediately from after nine eleven up to two thousand seventeen, I believe. I believe when this because basically it's about the report on enhanced interrogation tactics that were used at black sites. And this was used as a means to find um, information about Mm Al-Qaeda. And it kind of gets into the report that Adam Driver's character, who's uh, doing internal investigation of the CIA and their involvement in that. And he's writing a report about all the uh, laws broken, the effectiveness of um, EIT, which is the one phrase that he repeatedly uses. Get ready for a lot of jargon. Right. Um, Lots of acronyms. Lots of acronyms, lots of uh, like period referencing as well. It's very, 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 very quick. Where Annette Benning sort of exists almost as this very calm, sort of stately senator who sort of like lays it all out, but she does it in a very compelling way. But it's it, it, it's quite engrossing. I do feel like it is going to be again. It, it's very early to tell, but I do think this is, this is going to have an Oscar run at the very least. Okay. Um, so this, this, is, an, like this an American- is an essential to watch then, Paul. Uh, to be honest with you, yeah, it, it's one that I think will split opinion as well. Because watching it is definitely a first feature. Yeah, it talks about human rights. It talks about 
vulnerability as well of these sort of individuals that are put into it. But the way he frames it and the way he sets up these scenes is very kind of sensationalizing in a way, which contrasts to a film that they actually name check. Another film that's concerned with um, enhanced interrogation techniques and black such, which was the Zero Dark Thirty, which yes. is another massive Oscar contender. Yes. Whereas that film's in a very sort of... Um, matter of fact, very drab way, Slutter Z Burns really leans into the sensationalism of uh, these torture techniques. Hold that thought for a second. Let's have a little bit of the old uh, report here. Adam Driver and Annette Benning in action. After 9-11, everyone was scared. Possible hijacked planes. Scared it might happen again. Obvious terrorist attack. It was my second day of grad school. Next day, I changed all my classes to national security. Morning, Dan. Morning, Senator. Have you seen the story today in the New York Times? Evidently, the CIA destroyed tapes of interrogations of Al-Qaeda detainees. I want to find out what was on the tapes and why they were destroyed. No paper. Paper is a way of getting people in trouble at our place. At our place, paper is how we keep track of laws. Last night I found this. He's detainee number 24. Have you guys used this thing? No, we watched your video. They waterboarded him 183 times. 11, Everything they got from him 13. was either a lie or something they already had. If it works, why do you need to do it 183 times? Maybe when the report comes out, people will finally see that. <gasps> oh, right. All about subterfuge, collusion, burn the evidence. Now, do you think... Mm. Interestingly, around you mentioned Zero Dark Thirty, and it clearly takes some sort of side here, a bit leftist. Yeah, for sure. I suppose I mean, it's oddly sort of like towards the end, it becomes sort of bipartisan. Okay. Um, in its politics, I think he's trying to make a grander point about um, being able to govern your own systems of politics, right? So it doesn't necessarily paint the Democrats as uh, the winners because it talks a lot about Obama's own involvement in the process of torture and about his own sort of uh, distancing away from it only at the last second. Um, it, I think it is actually a bit more centrist, if anything. Uh, but that's where it's quite an interesting film. Say like Zero Dark Thirty, where it name checks it and it actually uses it an example of um, the kind of misinformation that was being passed around from the CIA being fed to government officials. Um, I, I think that's the interesting part of it. It shows the processes of which information is given to senators for them to then regurgitate. And that's where Annette Benning, um, for me again, just to say her again, she's the most interesting figure in it because her role shows you the theatrics of politics and why that is important or what the stakes of that are. Okay. Um, not to try and give too much away. No, no, no. Not to, but where Adam Driver is continually kind of knocking his head against the wall mm-hmm. and becoming more and more of a sort of a, a wrecked nerve for it and that Benning maintains this steady pace throughout all of it. It's, it's almost like an episode of Veep where everyone's really calm. Okay. Um, right. But, but there, is, there, there's there's Adam Driver in the middle, like, you know, buzzing around going, oh, I've got all this, you know, this is this is happening. And she's like, calm down, Adam. Well, yeah, exactly, yeah. And, and, it is, and it is a kind of, um, it's almost like a rallying, a rallying cry for bureaucracy, for sort of like for getting everything down on paper and sort of like going through systems and doing everything properly. Right. And about that is the real battle. It's to do everything by the books. It's about a fair system. So it valorizes a due process, I think, is, 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 is what drives that along. Okay, well, but, this is playing in the 
debate strand, which, as you've already detailed, Paul, it's probably going to strike up quite a few debates after people have seen this film. It's um, being distributed by Curzon, so it will get a cinematic release at some point in the UK. Director is Scott Z. Burns. Yeah, that's the one, yeah. So he's had quite a bit of collaboration with uh, Soderbergh in the past, which is what he's mostly related for. Um, and as I said earlier, I, I feel that this style, this kind of very whiplash, sort of agile style is being replicated, especially in the editing. It's very sort of quick, very sort of loose editing which I think really works very, very well because it's very very dense as we said before there's a lot of jargon there's a lot of kind of like catching you up on the facts because I think at the end the actual report was about 7,000 pages long right. with a 500 page summary wow. so it's trying to condense that in a way that is palatable um, which is another like, major part of the film it's about how do you communicate just this massive almost conspiracy really I mean, and, and conspiracy is a part, big part of the festival I think there's a few films that sort of centre around this idea and it is about just communicating something that is large and kind of unfathomable and the kind of systems of power that are trying to mask it, I think. Uh, It's trying to bring a kind of lucidity Okay. In the song. Well, clearly it's made an impression on you, Paul. And Scott Z. Burns does have this pedigree of uh, making action films, certainly in the screenwriting perspective. He's done the Bourne Conspiracy, sorry, Bourne Mm -hmm. Ultimatum, and he's he's also written the forthcoming Bond film as well. So he talked about the quick cuts. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, the quick cuts and everything else. Making something that is potentially not a very visual cinematic experience, a, what's it, 7,000 word report? Um, Yeah, but really filling it with uh, rocket fuel, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so, okay, right, well, the report playing in the debate and opening up the festival on the first weekend, on the 5th and the 6th, you can catch that one now we're going to zip through a couple more of these uh, galas very quickly jojo rabbit directed by taika watiti this is where a young uh, boy who is part of hitler youth has an imaginary friend in hitler and has a romantic liaison with a young Jewish girl who is hiding, who I guess is a cipher for Anne Frank in many ways, uh, played by mm. Thomasin McKenzie, who you may have seen in the fantastic Leave No Trace last year. Um, what do you think about Taika Waititi uh, approaching something like this, with uh, which is obviously still very contentious amongst uh, the Jewish community, certainly, and people who were affected by the Nazi regime? Um, well, the, the major voices that are coming out of it are saying about how he can't, uh, he doesn't make enough of, of a point. It's, it's too much soft of a point against, uh, it's been described as an anti-hate satire. Mm-hmm. So the conclusion from that is that you shouldn't even hate Nazis. So he finds sympathy in everywhere that he can. But where I'm approaching it from, I'm trying to think about it before I go into it, because I'm not 100% pre-sold on this film, but I am trying to give it a fair day, is that it's trying to come from a child's perspective of naivety and the idea that you can see a kind of humanity in anyone that you encounter. Um, But that is the major piece of contention, I think, is the idea that he is trying to soften World War II to the point where there are no villains, which especially in today's, well, in any time, in any time, really, what am I talking about? Today's, it could be from any time, these kind of, when these fascist regimes yeah. emerge, it's very clear, it's very demarcated, and the more the kind of room that you give them, uh, the more they'll take, I, I, I feel. Not not if you're a uh, BBC news reader, apparently, because fascism, you know, you have to be <laughs> about these sort of things, apparently. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm sort of of the opinion that I, it's like when you get into a band and they have their first record, right? And you're like, this is my little band. I love them. This is a great record. And then you subsequently get bigger 
and bring out their second album and, you know, maybe change their styles a little bit, soften the edges. Don't get that demo sort of feeling that you got with the first record that really hooked you in. And I feel like as Taika Waititi's uh, film career is progressing, I'm feeling he's losing that edge every single film that he makes. Obviously, Mm. he brought his quirky, weird style to big franchise Marvel film in in Thor Ragnarok. And that that brought him to the attention of lots of people who've never heard of him before. And then now we've got Jojo Rabbit, which is taking a very sensitive subject and trying to apply that controversial edge. And shall I say this off the wall edge to it? I mean, we, uh, I, we both I like haven't seen the film, but you know, it, no. I, I, I'm I'm already at the point where I'm just like, oh, everyone is just absolutely championing and and sort of almost like uh, deifying Taika Waititi as the lord of of the left field at the moment, and I or commercial mm. left field, shall I say? And I'm just so fed up of it. If I'm honest with you, I've just really yeah. checked out of it. I'm just like, fine, go and enjoy your Taika Waititi film. But guess what? It's probably going to be just as boring or as or as or as dull down as uh, Thor Ragnarok because you know that's his trajectory. <laughs> yeah, at the moment. I do agree. Um, um, you know, there he- is part of the discourse is this kind of almost hubris of the, of the very major successful artist who seems to be going from strength to strength. And I think people are looking at this title, especially because of its contentious nature, mm. as being the downfall, as being the chink in the armor. So now we can kind of crack open Taika Waititi and look maybe more thoroughly at the negative in his work because it has been such unanimous sort of praise. I mean, personally, I think my, my one thing with his work is it sort of peaked for me at what we do in the shadows right. um, in the sense that I feel he's very sort of one note. His humor is very one note. And it plays on banality. He always plays on banality. Yeah. And that in itself becomes very banal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, when the Thor Ragnarok uh, promos were coming out, it's like Thor's hanging out with his new flatmate. Oh, what's Thor doing with a flatmate? He's like, you know, some intergalactic being or whatever. Mm. And I'm like, I just can't laugh at just, I don't know, like mid level office workers for this long. I just can't do it. You know what I mean? <laughs> office Space came out in what, 96? Yeah, and yeah. it's just not really been funny since. No, I, I I agree with you. I, I having said that, let's let's give him his due. Boy was a brilliant film. I'm not going to yeah. take that away from him. There is a clearly uh, part of his identity and culture infused into that film. Um, In all of these films, really, I feel that that's the thing that that is something I enjoy about his work. I mean, talking about Thor Ragnarok, it's, it's all the kind of iconography that he sort of put into that design is very interesting. I think it was a very beautiful looking film. Okay. Um, but it is just sort of how much it's abstracting into aesthetic, I feel. I mean, a lot of um, comparisons Jojo Rabbit's been getting is with the films of Wes Anderson. So where we've had um, his films, which have had a kind of like tight control, especially with um, uh, Hunt for the Wilder People, mm. there's always been kind of like an air to them. They've not been like tight, breathless films. There's always been a lot of air for his characters. So I feel like YTG is becoming this kind of, almost like a designer's, filmmaker he's becoming someone that's going to have his own coffee table book right. at some point okay. and i think he's becoming attached more to an aesthetic than maybe um, a mandate maybe a kind of agenda interesting very interesting anyway that's playing one of the headline galas plenty of opportunity to see that i'm sure lots of his fans will be attending that in their droves i'm skipping over a couple of these now so american airlines gala the king this is the film from david michaud uh with timothy chalamet the hair timothy chalamet in the lead role playing a a what's described as a visceral portrait of henry the eighth uh alongside uh, joel edgerton who did the um, screenplay for this one he's uh, he's quite 
quite an accomplished um, writer. I think he did The Gift as well, and as well as that. He directed The Gift. Yeah. 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 Um, I'm looking forward to this. I mean, to be honest with you, because Michaud I have a lot of time for. And also, Joel Edgerton playing Falstaff, which means he's playing Orson Welles, uh, which is very exciting in my book. Okay. I love how you mentioned uh, Chalamet's hair. Yes. Because the other hairdo that's caught a lot of people's eyes is Robert Pattinson in this film. I forget um, Robin Pattinson in his film, but yes, go, what's, what's oh, going on? I could not forget him when I saw him in the trailer. So he's playing the Dauphin of France. One thing I immediately clocked is because he's got a sort of long uh, blonde locks, whereas uh, Charlemagne has got uh, a bowl cut, like a black haired bowl yeah. cut. It's the exact same two hairdos that Mila Jovovich had in this uh, 90s Joan of Arc film called The Passenger. Okay. So I'm personally looking forward to how many hairdo references this film might make. Because it's playing some big swings in the trailer. So that's me. Is it all hair and no substance, though? You know, some people say hair is substance, you know. (laughs) Um, Well, I'm rapidly losing mine, so make of that what you will. Um, But (laughs) this is another film that's actually uh, being um, pumped by uh, Netflix. Now, wasn't there another film that was uh, fairly historic? Wasn't it the uh, Robert Bruce story that had uh, Robert Pattinson in last year as well? Which uh, Yeah, that was uh, Outlaw King. Did nothing, did no, it didn't come to much a plum. It was the Chris Pine uh, vehicle. It's interesting that you mention Netflix, though, because there are one of three, I believe, films that are playing the galas that are Netflix titles. Yes. Uh, which festival um, play for Netflix is a bit contentious, especially with places like Cannes, who have like, outrightly banned it. Yes. The Oscars, um, I'm not sure if they've lifted their ban on Oscars getting nominated, because I know Spielberg's lifting that. So you've got, so what have you got? You've got The Irishman, uh, The King, and Marriage Story. Yes. Which is the new Noel Baumbach film, which is also another Netflix title. So, King of Mumblecore, Noel Baumbach, with his film The Marriage Story, it's the Mayfair Hotel Gala. What's what's going on with this film, Paul? Have you seen it yet? No, I haven't seen it yet. It's not played yet. So, this is going. These are one of the uh, titles that's going to play during uh, the festival. I know it's had some play at TIFF. From what I can gather from it, it's about um, a theatre family essentially. Um, so, Sally uh, Hansen is playing an actress. Mm-hmm. And they both run a theatre company in New York. Um, heard a Sondheim reference, or at least they use a Sondheim song in it, so it's very deeply connected to that sort of scene. Uh, it's about the breakdown of their marriage, as much as I can uh, gather from it. It's the usual kind of back sort of like middle-class New York types dealing with modern culture, a kind of Woody Allen offshoot. So, so kind um, of in a similar vein to the Mayorette stories, which uh, was on, on yeah. Netflix sort of film last year. Well, wait, that, 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 well, that was his last film. That was uh, Baumbach again. That was Baumbach again, wasn't it? And and you know mm. what? I've I've kind of looked back on uh, Noel Baumbach's uh, film. I don't have I don't have a problem with his mumblecore indie styling approach, and I don't have a problem with him hooking up with um, the same actors. You know, many directors do. No. I did watch Kicking and Screaming for the first time a few weeks ago, and I absolutely hated it. You know, you have very detestable <laughs> characters and hey I've said this before I don't need likeable characters to to get into a film but they were really just sort of talking about very middle class things and 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 things that actually I was just like get over it it's just first world problems you know this this film is bereft Mm. with first world problems I I have no investment or no interest in in these people going through their very privileged and um, comfortable lives Um, well this is his filmography yeah but I I do think the the other major release that came out, which is not even middle class, this is like the gentry, which is the souvenir. Right. Uh, did you get a chance to see that, Neil? Uh, the souvenir I didn't, and I've probably taken against that for similar reasons. 
Oh, well, the thing is, Neil, oh, it's the rom-com of the year. It's fantastic. And it is just a very sort of like a spurbic, just sort of vivisection of the, uh, the ruling classes. And this is something that Baumbach, as much as he has sympathy for, there is always a kind of bitterness in his films, a very sort of lacerating wit that sort of drives through them, which I always have time for. Yeah. He does this very, he walks this very thin line of where he finds the humanity in their situations. And, you know, anyone going through a divorce, which is a running theme in his work, mm. Um, I think you can always have time for, but I think he is very acutely aware of the trappings they surround themselves with and how their class informs, or even just their professions, informs the kind of dissolution of their family unit. And it looks like Marriage Story is another sort of iteration of this, but it has Adam Driver in it, which I'm very excited about. For that reason alone, I'd say it's probably worth seeing. It's had a very good reaction as well. Mm. Apparently Adam Driver sings in it as well. It's his first musical debut. Wow. Which I'm excited about, which of course he's leading into another um, a full art musical, like an actual musical beginning to end sometime next year. I don't know how to pronounce this director's name, director of uh, Holy Motors. Oh, Leo Carax. That's it, yeah. Yes. So he's um, headlining a Leo Carax film where he is like uh, fully in a musical. So this is a pre-game for that, if anything. Right, yeah. I've, I've read a lot about uh, Leo Carax's uh, next film. It's uh, written by... Um, the American electro sort of eighties and Sparks, uh, so it's got, really oh yeah, my god. So it's got the Male Brothers uh, written it. I'm not sure if they actually star in it, but that would make sense. Musical film. Back to Marriage Story. I feel that it's almost quite French because a lot of French directors deal with the the, the structure of, of of the family and the family breaking down, and then these all in, intertwining stories. Um, in that respect, I, I I could get hooked into this one. But I have to say, in, in his defence, and I know I've sort of stamped on uh, Noel Baumbach a little bit here, I, I did enjoy the sort of fresh and young roots stuff that he did display with Francis Ha, uh, which mm. was a really rousing film for me. And obviously that was a, probably one of the first times I actually saw Adam Driver on screen uh, that I can recall. And that and Tracks, I think, was the first time I saw him. But And, and The Squid and the Whale, I think, is a, a, a another great film as well in, in his work. But they, they are well-known quantities. Well, anyway, that's Marriage Story. It's playing uh, five times over the course of the festival. Uh, Le Mans 66, James Mangold, the director of Logan, the film uh, about uh, Wolverine with uh, Hugh Jackman, uh, now comes back with this racing film starring Matt Damon and Christian Bale. Now, hopefully, this is not going to turn around to be a bit like uh, Ron Howard's racing film Rush a few <laughs> years ago. This story is about the uh, Le Mans 24-hour race and it's about the competition between the two the two guys there, Damon and uh, Bale. I think they sort of have a friendship and then they sort of fall out of each other over the course of this race. I think it's just a classic sort of um, they're driven men and driven men Ooh. don't get along. Um, I Looking forward to this. From what I've heard, is that even if you're not interested in motors, it makes you very interested in motors for uh, two hours, I believe, is the length. Interestingly, because it's called Le Mans 66 yeah. uh, in the UK, but it's actually Ford versus Ferrari in the US. Um, and I was speculating about perhaps Le Mans 66 is more recognisable in the UK, but I just don't have enough knowledge about sort of Formula One driving history. Do you think that's the case now? Yeah, I, I think Le Mans is definitely a, a better known quantity in Europe. Um, it's not, mm. you know, because IndyCar racing uh, swallows up a lot of motor racing knowledge within uh, certainly America, uh, and perhaps they're not even in tune with Formula One per, per se in the USA, certainly. That makes uh, sense that they've altered the name for the different regions of the world. James Mangold comes out on the 
these press junkets all the time saying, oh, well, I took inspiration from this Western and he really <laughs> wants to let everyone know that he's he's classically sort of read up on some of these films. I think he went after someone on Twitter as well about about Logan um, not too long ago that I read, but which he clearly actually just searches his own name. He wasn't even tagged in this tweet by some, some <laughs> random person um, trying to explain his way out of it. I mean, um, let's just say if this is going to be Disney Pixar's Cars, if directed by Kurosawa, I mean, it could be the big Western of the year. Who knows? I'm down for that. A hundred percent. Absolutely. Down for that. Okay. So looking over just a couple of these uh, titles there, I, I don't know anything about Emma, uh, Pablo Lorraine's uh, latest one. Yes. So Pablo Lorraine, best known one was um, the Oscar vehicle for Natalie Portman, which was Jackie yep. about uh, Jackie Kennedy. Yeah. A lot of people didn't like Jackie. Uh, I'm not even sure why, but it's grown almost a kind of like, even though it was successful as a film, it's grown a sort of culturally cult phenomenon behind it. Hmm. What I know about Emma is that it follows another relationship story. I think it's another kind of like breakdown of, I'm not sure if they're married, but of a kind of marriage type situation of a dance troupe, two people from a dance troupe. Right. Um, and this, in its own way, again, is very similar to a kind of musical. Um, perhaps this is the continental version of La La Land that we deserved. Um, oh, you're not a fan of La La Land. I hate La La Land. I really do. The kind of like um, point you were making about um, Baumbach's films, about them being kind of privileged, or yeah. that's the kind of thing that turns you off. That's the thing that I really turned off about La La Land. Okay. I think that it sort of cribbed things from uh, you know what we're not talking about La La Land no, this not, is a whole different podcast episode okay. a whole it's, other hour it's an interesting point um, though that's fair enough but I was looking at Lorraine's work uh, back catalogue of work here I have seen uh, The Club which was a very very depressing film about um, priests who had sexually abused uh, children oh. in, in their village and then the children were now grown up and were seeking um, some sort of revenge or uh, closure to the fact that they'd been abused by this commune of monks I believe and then it, it kicked off in this town it was an incredibly depressing film but very explicit mm. as well and he doesn't shy yeah. away from that sort of political statement and you know these are very controversial things these things not talked about in Chile at all um, and that was that was a film that really struck me I saw at that Glasgow Film Festival a few years ago I'm willing to give this one a go seeing as mm. that we've had some fantastic work that's come out of South America uh, as of late and uh, Emma's playing a couple of times on the second weekend and you can catch that on the 11th and the 12th One thing to say about the club actually just connected to that I think it's shot by the same cinematographer I think his name's Sergio Armstrong I only know his name because he shot Souvenir and it's absolutely beautiful image like I, I think just for the um, aesthetic alone it's probably worth going and to see this frame of the dance film as well very exciting Okay, locked in for Emma there by Pablo Lorraine. The family gala is the Abominable, which is, uh, as you would guess, an abominable snowman. It's a CG animated Chinese US film that's being distributed by Universal in the UK. The only names that I recognise off there are uh, Eddie Izzard and uh, Sarah Paulson. Um, and obviously mm. because it's a, a cross-cultural production, uh, you would expect maybe a little bit more authenticity behind displaying the Himalayas and, and, and the, the, the mythos behind the abominable snow man now Baccarat is in the thrill gala and this played at Cannes this year it's directed by let me get this wrong Akiba Mendonca <laughs> Philho I think that's right took the jury prize this year uh, can uh, so mm. Brazilian Western it's described as and all the all the press shots I've seen of it kind of reminds me of Raw because there, there's a woman there that's in these uh, almost veterinary gowns that's it's bloodstained uh, surrounded by other people um, have you have you managed to catch Baccarat yet? 
again, not playing until the festival. Okay. Um, I, I'd love to update you all about this as soon as I've seen them. But yeah, I do agree. It looks very sort of visceral, very grisly, mm. um, very, very bloody. I do think you're going to see a lot of this film in the UK as well. It's been distributed by movie mm. um, and they're very much champion their films. But yeah, I think Raw, if, for anyone who's seen Raw, that's a really good comparison. Okay, um, it's great that Mubi have picked it up. They they picked up a, f- a few other films from last year's festival, which then landed on its platform not too late after the actual festival had played. I believe one of them was Border as well last year, which played the festival. Yeah. And uh, if none of you have heard of Mubi before, um, please go and check it out. It's a great way to try and tap yourself into a hard-to-find independent art house and also some quite a few familiar titles as well. They have a, a system where you have 30 films on there and every day a new one pops up and a, an old one just sort of drops off the end there and it's it's just a, if you've never tried movie i think that you get a free trial as well i sound like a, a salesman here but um it's a really really good stepping stone to try and get yourself into those films at a fairly cost effective level as we all know money is consistently tight with anyone who works in the, uh, or is interested in the film industry the dude in me a comedy film and it is a south korean comedy film um have you seen this one as well or is this one i have that- seen this one oh, yes, tell, tell us all about it paul tell us all about it uh, Okay, The Dude in Me. So if, if anyone out there has ever watched, like, say on Netflix, there's loads of K-dramas and they're about 20 episodes long, an hour long of people just being beautiful, stood in rooms, doing very little. This is a very similar vein, but just in two hours. Okay. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. But it is a product of kind of mainstream South Korean uh, filmmaking in the sense that it's very sort of morally conservative, I feel. Okay. Uh, it's very much about preserving a family unit, about personal pride. Yeah. The, the major thing about it that's really sort of problematic is the amount of jokes about obesity in it as a kind of down put. Do you so think, do you think that's uh, like a cultural thing then? It's the fact that, you know, that South Korean society isn't uh, maybe attuned to being as politically correct as perhaps uh, we are or, or even America. Um, I'm a, just from sort of like mainstream sort of products that come out, that's that's something that I've seen. So say like gangster films and comedies, mm. stuff like that, stuff like the international fair that they put out recently. Like there's another film that I think about called The Merciless. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, from what I could gather, was a kind of um, homoerotic text that was just absolutely buried underneath layers and layers of enforced kind of male pride. and very severely cut film. Right. I wonder when they go through senses what these films look like before. Mm. But if you want to give me a quick summary of it, basically it's a Freak Friday situation where a high-level mobster and a young boy who's obese and high school uh, swap bodies after an accident. And you follow the story of the mob boss who's inside this kid's body and him coming up from the bottom as a bullied child to running the school, essentially. Uh, the one conceit, though, is that the girl who fancies him, the mm-hmm. boy in the school, her mother was the boss's old lover from years and years ago. So one thing you have to figure out is that if it's his daughter. Right. So it becomes a very sort of like tongue-in-cheek um, sort of sex comedy in many yeah. ways. Yeah, and it's an awkward one by the sounds of it as well. A very, very awkward one, yeah. Yeah. And again, it's also a lot of it's about kind of like, I suppose kind of stoicism in the sense of like, being a man and being very respectful about um, addressing certain people or knowing your sort of age as well, like, uh, right. like how that completely shifts from under him. A rich guy has to learn not to be rich. And fat child needs to lose weight, essentially. And that's like a really contentious part of it. Yeah. So I think it's good to watch the light comedy, but I think politically, yeah, I think it's a bit of a rock borough. Okay. Okay, well, well, here's the important question. Seeing as it's a laugh film, did you laugh? I did. There's, God, there's one joke. 
he does a paternity test and it's a moment on Maury essentially, you know, when, um, he says, you are the father, you aren't the father. And the dad just like falls back out of the chair. It does that. It's fantastic. Okay. okay. Well, that's a dude in me. Looking over a couple of the other um, galas then, The Two Popes, this is starring uh, Anthony Hopkins and Jonathan Price, where they uh, actually nominate two popes in post. Have you caught this one at all, Paul? No, yeah. This is another Netflix film as well. Oh, is it? Oh, there we go. I think so, yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah. You should see Hopkins on screen, to be honest with you, in sort of what seems to be a prestige role. I mean, he did a little bit of something in um, more horror fair with, what was that one called where he was an exorcist, if you remember that one? Uh, was that the one, no, was that the one where he was guiding Colin Farrell in the back of the car because he could sense... Um... <laughs> no, I haven't heard that one. That one sounds no, fantastic. No. Oh, no, that was where he was playing a psychic. Um Oh, I can't remember the one that where, where Hopkins. I think it was, it was like Heretic or something like that. Um, yeah, something like, or the right or the something right. Like that. Yeah, yeah, that it. sounds right. Yeah. It is. Um, but yeah, it's nice to see him in this kind of role, showing the with Jonathan Price as well. Um, that seems to be the main drawer of it. Uh, well, to see where this sort of sits on its own opinions about Catholic Church, mm. about uh, Pope Francis, um, and his sort of move on. I, I think it'd be very interesting to see. Yeah, and obviously, you know, Jonathan Price, classic, classic actor, flexing, oh, his, flexing his chop as the, 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 the Grand Sparrow in the Game of Thrones, where a lot of people will um, know him from mm. as, as of late. I think it's interesting that we've had films about popes quite recently. I say films. We have Paolo Sorrentino's uh, series, the, the Young Pope. Is it The Young Pope? Mm. That, uh, on, on yeah, tele- The Young Pope, yeah. With Jude Law as well. And so uh, what that made some points about Catholicism in the modern world as well and it'd be interesting to see if um, uh, this film indeed does go down that one but um, playing at London and also will be available I'm sure very very shortly on Netflix as well in the Create Gala and this is more of your sort of musically patched together sort of films uh, we've um, got Bruce Springsteen directing a well co-directing a film with a guy called Tom Zimney and this is called Western Stars are you, are you a fan of the boss then Paul? Yeah big fan of the boss and it's a really good year to be a fan of the boss as well there's a lot of like stuff coming out that's circling around him. I for anyone who likes to blind his lives for the church film that came out. It he was in good addition to that. From what I can ascertain, it, it is a documentary about his 19th studio album, which is of the same name, West Stars. Um, also, there are moments that are kind of sort of um, more poetic, metaphorical senses. So, um, you know, like stand-up comedies have the little films at the beginning of them. This is what is like a documentary of a live show with those dotted around. Yeah, so it, it, yeah. it's almost like just a feature length um, visual album, like much in the vein of like Lemonade or something like that. That's what it comes across as. So this is, is this going to be another one of those sort of indulgent making of films, do you think, or is there going to be a little bit more of that? Because I, I distinctly remember that, um, didn't Daryl Hannah uh, just direct something as well uh, about her husband, Neil Young, and that sort of was trying to capture the essence of what Neil Young was putting into his album. And it was Western, it was called Paradox, and it was kind of Western themed mm. as well. I'm, I'm just feeling that maybe, is this kind of a little bit of promotional artistry sort of publicity for, for someone to sell a few uh, extra records? Oh, yeah, but like, you know, what's a film? Film's trying to sell things, you know. Um, I, I think... Perhaps it is. I can see the boss, though, being at this point. I mean, he is such an international like, star. He wouldn't necessarily... I don't know. I'm wrestling with the idea that he wouldn't necessarily have to do that, but I think it may be because he's also co-directing. It could it could fall into the realm of the vanity piece. But the interesting thing about documentary, 
what I've noticed from the competition and with other films that I've seen in the strands is there's a lot of focus in the films that they've picked about placing the director or the filmmaker or the documentarian as a central character of it. It's all about the act of, of creation, which obviously is appropriate because mm. this is the create gala. But I, I would be interested to see where that fit amongst it, whether he interrogates himself as an artist mm. amongst it while he's performing these things. I, I would be very interested to see what his take is on it. Um, I think some parts of it have described it as a memoir and it being very sort of late in his life, I can see this maybe going into maybe a nostalgic trip, but I do feel he would give us something perhaps more reflective if it is anything like his work. Clearly, he puts a hell of a lot of his own sort of upbringing in his life into his mm. music. I'm just feeling that perhaps from your description of it and what I've read about it, this is going to be very kind of introverted and maybe just for boss fans and quite uh, impenetrable by someone who maybe is not really into Bruce Springsteen. Well, he has such a massive fan base, so mm. they might be okay. Uh, you know, as a fan of Bruce Springsteen, I'm excited for it. I can't deny it. No, fair enough. Uh, I don't um, want to dole that excitement. No, 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 I know, yeah. But um, I think when you enter any documentary, yes, and this is what I'm trying to like put it alongside of, there is always a degree of sort of catching up and a sort of information delivery. Yes. You know, say, for instance, if we watch something like David Lynch's The Art Life, trying to get across what is the value of watching this guy just smoke mm-hmm. in his... Uh, studio and what is the importance of watching this guy and the gravitas he has if you are not familiar with him yes. is something a little impenetrable but surely that's the job of the film the job of the film is to make that apparent that kind of artistry apparent mm-hmm. yeah. which which we can only hope will be the case and as I say I can't confirm whether he does that or not but what, from what I've heard of this film is that at the very least it is aesthetically quite ravishing okay well um, you know that, and, in, that in itself I think Ken, if you're a real cinephile, I think I think you can at least have something to latch on to if you're not a fan of, of Bruce's uh, of work. and I, I, Something that definitely sounds like you're going to be making a beeline to... Um, Absolutely, to yeah. Yeah, so um, that's playing the last weekend of the festival. <laughs> now, here we go. Here's one of Mr. and Mrs. Ramji's choices. I'm a bit annoyed, actually, because I've missed the press screening of this one, so they'll be able to see it, and I haven't. It's Corey Finley's second film at London Film Festival, and it's called Bad Education. I believe this is already press screened. It has, yes. I'm interested in why Mr. and Mrs. Ramji picked it. What was their reasoning? I think they were just interested in the idea that I think something that's been quite pertinent to them actually growing up, even though I'm slightly too old for it, but the idea that where education is particularly good and where mm. children excel, the idea that around all of that, that that there are other factors and things that um, rise with that. And, and in this case, it's house price, uh, house prices and, you know, how within a catchment area, it's, things can be seen as desirable and the things that prop, prop up around something that you wouldn't really think would have a massive, massive effect. But clearly in this film, the fact that this school, which uh, Hugh Jackman is the school superintendent and he's like held up as like a star, isn't he, in the early 2000s, that yeah. uh, people want to move to this area and, and therefore it, it just makes makes it unob- this quality of education is unobtainable if you're poor really because you mm. you can't move around these areas so I, I think i think that sort of balance between um the entitlement to a good education and also the the access to that i think was something that kind of hooked them in i did actually say to them i saw uh, thoroughbreds which was the film from uh, last year or the year before that, that cory friendly did that was uh, had a massive impression on me I, I really really love that he can work quite clearly very well 
well with uh, young actors and in that film it was uh, Olivia Cook, Anton Yelchin. Uh, yeah, but I'm interested to hear that though uh, because apparently, because this is based on real events so this is about an embezzlement scandal. Yes. Uh, if anything. So it's almost kind of like the, um, the logical end point Mm-hmm. say of, of a building one around it to the point where education does become this kind of money factory becomes the end point of that sort of uh, activity I'm struggling to think of film before this that Hugh Jackman starred in that wasn't the greatest showman <laughs> um, uh, well, what, I'm not sure if there is one I like <laughs> do you do you mean of, of that's not attached to a franchise or do you I, I literally like for some reason like more than Wolverine, more than anything, Great Sherman has just subsumed Jackman for me. Like, it's just what he is. And obviously, that was his project, uh, passion project, so that would be what you kind of want to be associated with. Sure. But this is a return to something that is completely diametrically opposite, which yes. apparently is, is also the, the case for bad education with thoroughbreds. Apparently, this is very, very different from thoroughbreds, which is good. Which we like to hear someone doing their second film, and it is in a very different vein. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm very interested to see Jackman in... Because he was a teacher, wasn't he? He, he did used to actually be a PE teacher acting this, at this man's, home. this man's done it all, Paul. This man is a song and dance. He truly man, has. Man yeah. of Broadway, you know. Give him, <laughs> give him anything, and he's—I think he's got an album out as well, hasn't he? So you know, this this guy can do. He can play a play a Wolverine. He can Jean Valjean <laughs> in 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 Les Mis. Um, he it was even he can even do comedy. You know, movie forty three. Um, <laughs> he had some interesting things on his neck in that particular. He's film. got the rain. Yeah, yeah he's so, got the absolute rain. But you think about the serious pieces he's done, you know, for big people like uh, Nolan with The Prestige and mm. also um, Prisoners, uh, uh, Denny Villeneuve's film. I think that those are two excellent performances. This guy, this guy's got it all, really, hasn't he? Yeah, he can play up like a boyish charm of say, but that naturally exudes from him because mm. apparently this is very linked to that character. And I'm interested in him taking what could be linked to his own persona, his own history as, as a teacher. Yeah, yeah. And sort of distorting it and making it darker, using it in a kind of uh, malevolent way. So I'm very much keeping my eyes out for it because I think we're in for a treat. Well, let's hope so because his uh, last film, which I like but no one seemed to like, uh, was The Front Runner, which didn't really um, set the world alight. Uh, and that was the, the another true story um, set in America of a disgraced uh, candidate f- uh, for the presidency. Um, ah, yes. Yeah, alongside uh, Vera Farmiga as well, uh, directed by Jason Reitzman. Um, so anyway, oh. that's Bad Education. And Blackbird is another film that I've picked to come and see. I'm going to see it on the first Sunday um, for no reason at all as the fact that I like some of the people that are in it that have caught my eye. So Lindsay Duncan was uh, one of those names who was brilliant opposite Jim Broadbent in The Weekend, a lovely little story of ageing love. Um, we've got Mia Wasikowska, who always seems to be on the festival track as well. Yeah, she's in um, Judy and Punch, which is also playing. And um, Susan Sarandon. Now, is that is that the correct way we're we're going with that one, or is that everyone tells me a different way to pronounce her surname? Oh, I've always known it as Sarandon. What do the people pronounce it as Sarandon? Sarandon. Apparently, I get laughed at when I go on American podcasts, and they go, "Oh, that's not how you say it." <laughs> uh, but apparently, it's supposed to rhyme with abandon. But anyway, so this is a film from Roger. Michelle, um, I'm not familiar mm. with uh, Michelle's work, uh, which is apparently Enduring Love and Louis Weekend and, oh, actually I am then, um, and Notting Hill. Mm. Um, this is another sort of family uh, affair where uh, Sarandon plays a mother spending her final few days with her husband and her adult children. And it's clearly going to 
tug at the heartstrings there and lots of things going on when you have uh, end of life sort of films I, I I just think it's going to be a little bit of comfort for me on a Sunday night to be honest with you not nothing, <laughs> nothing more than that uh, have you uh, got any interest in this one whatsoever Paul um, probably not on first sight but although that said I always catch myself around Christmas time watching these kind of films like The Holiday right. which obviously starred Kate Winslet as well uh, but also something like Nine Hill or Love Actually and this seems to be of a very similar vein and I always have time for Susan Sarandon um, because it's, it's one of those things where I, some I've once heard someone I can't remember what podcast I was talking on and someone was talking about Sarandon's sort of like abilities like going with her age or something like that which I think is absolutely ridiculous I think she's one someone that has actually gone from strength to strength. Mm. Um, so I mean, anything that she's in, I'm interested in. I, I've made a kind of like a repeated sort of statement about a lot of these films. That a lot of the lead actors are usually what I go in for. It just kind of shows the quality of the program at the minute. I think. Yeah, I mean, like you know, people could say it's quite based just to go on the films based on their stars. But if that that star's got a good track record and you've enjoyed them and their various roles that they've played and they've managed to stretch themselves, and why not? You know, like, and we're there to watch people. Yeah, we're we're there to watch people literally writ big. Um, and if it's someone whose work you enjoy, and it's half of experience, I feel. Yeah, absolutely. Now let's let's um, skip over some of this stuff and and look at Portrait mm-hmm. of a Lady on Fire, which seems to be the real sort of critics choice at the moment it's been released in france uh, and it's uh, kind of bombs there it's not got very uh, good uh, well it's options. not their um, it's not their oscar pick which everyone had uh, thought it was going to be because it was uh, more or less the, in the uk the kind of critical darling that came out of can early in this year yeah. but uh, les miserables has beaten it for the france's oscar selection um, this is one film that i've heard so much about ever since it came out Everyone is, is on fire about it, some would say. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. But um, I, I don't have to pronounce her uh, Celine, Celine Schiama. Schiama. Yes. Um, she, her screenwriting is that I followed. So she was the writer of um, My Life as a Zucchini, I believe. Oh, was she? Oh, I did not I know do. I, I do believe she was one of the co-writers for it. Let me right. just double check that. But um, I do believe that is her brand of thing. Um yeah, I, I mean, and also she co-directed. She also directed um, Girlhood, Girlhood as well. Yeah, huge, huge film. I, one of my, I've, you know, if we're going to be um, do listicles here, um, that will be yeah. my top thirty of this decade from two thousand and ten to two thousand and twenty. Definitely a huge film that kind of puts uh, impoverished girl gangs and and even girls front and center. Now, some people might, uh, particularly because they're, they're of black origin, um, some people may say that it's slightly inauthentic that this uh, French white woman is. Uh, was you know writing a film about uh, black girls essentially in the banlieues of uh, of France? I, I think it, I think it gave an opportunity to see a story that you don't often get. Uh, mm. I'm sure she got some sort of consultancy on that from various people who were involved in that as well. So I, I gave her a little bit of a pass on that one. But portrait of, of, of a lady on fire. What's what's the kind of gist of the story on this one? Essentially, it's a lesbian romance. And basically, a female portrait artist who in love with their subject, essentially. It's quite a straightforward story in that sort of sense. From what I've been told, because as I said, I, haven't been to, I, I wasn't at Cannes this year, but I've met a lot of people who have been. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they'd love to tell you what they saw at Cannes. Oh, they love to talk about Cannes. <laughs> of course they do. They really, they really, really do. Um, a lot of it about just gazing, looking, kind of shared intimacies that are very, very subtle, okay. which is kind of... 
um, the opposite of what was last year's major lesbian uh, release, which was uh, The Favourite. Yes. Uh, which was a lot more explicit, a lot more sort of um, into the nitty-gritty, a lot more comedic. Mm. Whereas this one is a lot more about the kind of nuances surrounding forbidden love, I suppose. Yeah. Um, well, I guess because of the period that these things are set, I guess you you you, you have to use that phrase, don't you? You have to use the phrase, yeah. Um, but from, from what I've, I've been told to best film, yeah. Um, I love it's about sort of, I'd say she's, she's the portrait artist, she's the subject, so she's literally continually gazing and it's about that relationship shit, that kind of empty space between them. But that's about as far as I know with it, really. Okay. Um, interesting, you're talking about girlhood and about the contention of a white filmmaker yes. making a black narrative. Yes. Uh, moving on to the first feature competition, if I can just take a little yeah, yeah, jump. Yeah, of course. Yeah, please go for it. Is one I saw was uh, the last black man in San Francisco. Yeah. So this this is uh, about the gentrification of, of of San Francisco, sort of alienating the black community. Is that correct? That's it. Yeah, and that's kind of almost the uh, the poster child of gentrification in San Francisco. It's the one that the most kind of stereotypes about, about hipsters and all this sort of stuff are made, and it's probably the, the most well known kind of example of that happening in real time. And which again is it's, it's directed by a, a white director and co-written by a white director. Uh, the lead actor in it, Jimmy Fails, yeah. is also the co-writer of it. And himself mm-hmm. it's interesting because it's about a relationship between two creative black young men yes living in san francisco and jimmy's friend who's a playwright an artist is actually the stand-in for this white director okay it becomes very interesting in the sense that that character starts to look at other black men and their masculinity and starts to copy it and to sort of like regurgitate it is, is this really- going along the same lines as uh, last year's film blind spotting which kind of kind of made some of these points as well didn't it about um aping uh say uh, stereotypical black characteristics and, and and co-opting some of those uh, with you know the two central figures of that film i suppose so in a way yeah it's sort of about how performative masculinity is in a way a kind of cushioning it is a, it is a performance piece in itself. Uh, the whole movie is quite artificial in that sort of way, in the sense that it, it makes you very aware that you're watching a film. It's, it shows you the kind of artificiality and the kind of roles that we play and the way that we create ourselves all the time. I wasn't entirely in love with it. I thought certain aspects of it, I think it was made more, in my personal opinion, it was made more for a white audience, like inadvertently. Interesting. The kind of people that want to sort of self-lacerate and sort of poke fun at themselves at being these sort of hipsters. Okay, well, um, you know, let's let's hear from the film itself. Uh, we've got a little clip here from The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Still the same. Yeah, I like what you and your dad did with it. So much you drove off with it. No, I bought it. I didn't just, come on, I drove off with it. I bought it. <laughs> Shit. Matter of fact, I seen your dad the other day. He was good and lonely by himself. Okay. I told him, you need to get you a cat or a dog, a woman or something. Damn. He's home alone. Well, he ain't at home, but he's alone. <laughs> he's alone with no home. <laughs> <laughs> but are you live in a car by yourself. Yeah, but I, but I'm not alone. People like me. I'm liked. He's liked, but he lives in a car, and yet he's making fun of other people uh, in the mm. area. Um, so you weren't fully on board with that one, but it's an interesting one. It is a very interesting one. I think it's definitely worth checking out. As a first feature, it's very ambitious, and I think that's, that's sort of why I respect it. That's why, overall, like as I say, I wasn't hot on it, but I did like it. I, I do think there's a lot of discussion that can come out of it as well. 
And it's a very fun movie as well. Um, the main character, Jimmy, he's a... Oh, sorry, if we can say. No, I, they, they sound like that they are quite jovial sort of characters, you know, especially mm. in that clip there in the car is quite funny um, to, to an extent. But some of the language seems as authentic as it is. A little bit impenetrable, shall we say, uh, with some of the abonics being used? Yeah, sure. It's very specific to the to the location, to the into the interior culture. Um, there are a lot of jokes in here that perhaps maybe I miss them. Perhaps I maybe miss certain sort of stereotypes being brought up, or sort of like nuances, I should say, being brought up. Because to me, it just comes across as just hipsterdom. It's the generalised sort of white middle class hipster who's invading the territory, okay. um, which is a bit that gets repeated very often. Right. But I think in the script is where its best elements are which Jimmy has written, I think it's definitely worth discussion and I can see why people absolutely love it. There were so many people at my screening that were absolutely buzzing about it. So I would absolutely valorise people who go to see it. I, I think they're hipsters, Paul. Anyway, right. <laughs> um, let's, hear, let's hear from you now. Let's, let's hear about the ones that you have seen that you really, really want to tell people about that really, at the press screenings that you've seen so far, that, you know, must be on your, your watch list. Go grab a ticket for this. This is a hot ticket. Okay, sure. I've been looking a lot from competition not in Strand. And there are a few that I think are absolutely, I, I don't use, like to use the word masterpiece, actually. I'm going to avoid that. Okay. Um, but some that just blew me away. Um, the first one is a film called Hope Frozen. There's a documentary that follows a Thai family who, when their infant child, their daughter, um, has died of a brain tumor, have taken her brain and put it on cryogenic stasis in hopes for a cure in the future. Mm-hmm. And it basically, it's about the relationship with the family and about sort of trying to defy mortality in general. Conceptually, quite grueling. But you have to really wrap your head around the family's decision to do this, to take their baby daughter and to not want to grieve. But I think the gentle gaze that he gives all the way through, the kind of way he gives these characters to explain what seems incredibly eccentric and perhaps even desperate from the outside, and find the little nuances of humour, the, the relationship between the family members. I think it's a really touching, affecting movie. I, I, that's my big film of the festival. It's a very short film. It's only, I think it's about 80 minutes long in total, but it's, it's definitely my favourite. This, um, this is a Thai film, didn't you say? Um, this is Thai, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this seems like a thread about dealing with uh, consciousness um, and and perhaps even dreams to an extent. Um, yeah, Buddhism does make a, 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 a quite a big sort of like part of it, um, especially talking about ideas of reincarnation and the ideas of, of allowing nature to process in that kind of way. Okay, because um, a few years ago I, 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 I saw a film which didn't chime with me, but the person I went with um, loved it because she loves uh, magic realism. And that was, um, I'm going to get this name wrong, here we go, mm. Happy Chat Pong Wirasthikol Cemetery of Splendor who I think I think does make great films and it was an interesting film about soldiers and and then when they go to sleep you know what the brain is actually doing and linked to the real world and it was it was quite abstract in it in its sense as well I feel like perhaps there's something to say about what's going on in Thailand that might be tying yeah. into some of these common threads all I know is that it it definitely sounds of the same sort of thing you're speaking about because there's a continual point that is being brought up. It's continually about sort of um, mass consciousness. Where do we go? What happens to us? Um, it asks very big questions about mortality that it doesn't care to answer, but it definitely wants you to ponder. And that's where its kind of gentle tone comes in. It allows you to kind of engage with the film as you're watching it, which I think is great. Any film that does that, I think, is absolutely fantastic because you're just you're interacting with it. You know, whereas something with the report is giving you a very direct message, which is more appropriate for that film. But for Hope Frozen to do that, I think it was a real politically charged film. 
Okay, well, Hope Frozen playing on the Sunday and the Monday of the festival and definitely one of Paul Farrell's choices for you to pick up a ticket for 75 minutes. Won't take too much of your time either. Uh, Paul, anything mm. else that you kind of like on, yeah, that's an absolute banger on the old press circuit? The Sound Anthology was another one. Uh, this is a Quebecian, suppose horror film in a, in a sense. It's based in a small rural town where money's running out, jobs are running out, people are leaving. And one day, the dead start appearing. Yes. As ghosts hang, not doing anything, but they're present. Uh, and in a town that's grieving the loss of one of their young who has committed suicide. The reason I really like this film is that it's kind of about the idea of not confronting your grief. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does it in a very playful way with very, I used to talk about magical realism. There's, a, there's um, a moment where one of the characters literally, instead of confronting her own fear, starts to levitate above the small township Yes, at, a, at about 20 feet. Yes. And she just avoids it completely. And that, I think, is the general tone of the film. There's something a little, I suppose I can use the word quirky, something of a kind of Twin Peaks sort of tone about it, where you meet all these kind of characters who are sort of seeing something incredibly fantastic, but speaking about it in a very plain way that I very much enjoyed. Okay. Uh, I, I was in the same screening as you. I came out with very, um, a very different take on it. I, could, I, I think I needed to, to, to marinate on it a bit, and I, now I have. Mm. It still didn't hugely grab me, and I can see where you're coming okay. from in terms of your enjoyment of it i just think that i've i've seen similar ideas played out in you know it's a common trope where the, the dead come back in some form or other or we have a very marginalized town because this town that's at the center of of this film is a typical small town that doesn't like outsiders um and mm. there's a central figure from montreal who comes in to investigate this this suicide doesn't she she's like a mediator or mm-hmm. something from the township and she's she's met with distrust not just because I think she's an outsider, but because I think she's a she's a she's a Muslim as well, isn't she? Um, she's, she's indeed, yeah. She comes in dressed in her uh, her religious garb. I think for, from a cinematography point of view, and uh, the way that the dead are uh, come back, and certainly that levitating scene is something that's stayed with me since the film as, as something that I've really really thought about because that character, as you said, was in absolute panic. She's in a house and she's she suddenly panics that the dead are going to come in. That's right isn't it and then all of a sudden she bolts out and then the next thing we know she's flying like a kite in the middle of the uh the whites there. <laughs> like that's what she's concerned about the bottom line about how this looks on the outside and all of that is about the repression of all these people who just don't want to confront their own fears and just basically denial because every the way the whole movie is sort of like structured is that as soon as you get to like a boiling point of where someone's going to say something or something's going to happen, it cuts to another scene. Mm. But the film defers conversation. Okay. And I think that's something that, I, I think maybe in my own life, uh, like I, I really resonated with that because I've known so many people that just don't want to have it out. Yeah, I guess the the avoidance of that would, would make sense if you've, if you've had experience of that or, or know of people. And what's the name of the film again? Ghost Town Anthology. Ghost Town Anthology. Right, there's one film that you mentioned to me before we uh, even started recording this, which was uh, Werner Herzog. <laughs> Tell us about Verna's latest. So, family romance. Um, it's not quite a documentary, but it is based on real things that have happened. So, basically, it's scripted from real conversations of um, an agent or an actor who works for typical family romance who provide family and family members for occasions or even for regular basis. Okay. So in one scene earlier, an actor is standing in for a, a, a father to give the bride, a, bride away. Mm-hmm. What we find out is that where the mother has given the excuse that the father is ill, the daughter confesses that her father is an alcoholic, and that's why he can't give her away. So a lot of it's about saving face in that sense. So what 
the film, I think, is broadly about is the idea of constructed experiences. So this bride wants the best wedding that she can have. So she's going to literally hire someone to be a good father for that day so she can have her dream wedding. Yes. And this is a real company. So the thing that I really loved about this film is that Herzog did not do a voiceover track for it. That might be seen as... Oh, uh, no, absolutely. For me, I absolutely love that because you can see the scenes in, in which he would definitely step in and give the whole, you know, the abyss is only what we see within ourselves. Um, <laughs> that kind of thing. The chicken has a very flat brain. Um <laughs> And I like that kind of restraint. I mean, it's quite broad. It's sort of um, Herzog's discovered Instagram and he doesn't think much of it. I, you know, I think you can certainly go into it and have an eye roll, mm. but it has such a playful sense about it that you can't write it all up as a kind of cynicism about technology. Okay. And I don't think. The, the, this is I, set in Japan, isn't it? It is set in Japan. And that's one thing that I think can be maybe, again, a little contentious about the film. I was talking to someone um, the other day about this film that I know is a massive Herzog fan who... Oh, Herzog is a meme he's quite, he quite likes. Um, but he was talking about how there are similar services actually in the UK. Um, there's one in London, at least, that he's aware of where people stand in as actors in people's like occasions and stuff like that. There was, there was one about... Um, he was telling me about... There was one case study where there was a gay Muslim couple and they needed people like family to come to their wedding because they couldn't invite them. They were too... Uh, traditional right um so they hired all these people to attend at their wedding so Herzog's decision to set this in japan i mean i don't know where the research came in i don't know what he was aware of but it feels to me maybe a little stereotypical to bring this kind of story about technology replacing reality and kind of this idea of alienation Mm. uh set in japan because i feel this may be a narrative that we've seen many times before especially from western directors um most iconically in lost in translation yeah so there was a little bit of tension in my watching of that, but Herzog has got such a curious eye, even to this day, that is filled with a kind of wry humour that I think makes it basically enjoyable. It makes it very, very enjoyable on a very basic level. And he finds the humour in these kind of characters that wheedles out a kind of nuance from these reported stories. He's got a very observational eye as well. I think the fact that he's quite good pals with Vim Vendors as well probably, you mm. know, bleeds into each other there with, with their... Obs- I think Tokyo Gar was uh, a documentary film that I watched uh, that Vendors did in, in the 80s. And uh, I think even Herzog appears halfway through the film. He does, yeah. It's, it's, it's holiday snaps, isn't it, essentially? <laughs> yeah, basically. But they, 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 as, as Western sort of directors, they definitely have a great eye for other cultures. And obviously Herzog... Mm. Um, doing all the stuff uh, like Fitzcarraldo, um, Aguirre, Wrath of God. I think they they actually do do a respect to other cultures as well that that I think other directors struggle to to achieve. And you know, you cited there that uh, Lost in Translation, um, mm. Sofia Coppola film. I think I think fails in that aspect as well. To, it to does. I, I agree with that. Yeah. It's just I, I suppose maybe it's maybe that's more my own preconceived notions that I'm putting onto it because as I say, there is a genuine curiosity curiosity with Herzog's camera like people aren't there just to be placed he's he is intensely looking at them he's studying them right but I think maybe sometimes there's a great scene actually that at first I eye rolled but he sustains it uh, which makes it really work he goes to a hotel it's a famous hotel in Tokyo where the staff there are all AI bots, you know, the kind of things that are kind of recreated to look like people, but they just about don't, and it's a bit spooky. Right. And so that reinforces the idea of just having something that it just about isn't the real thing. Okay, right, I get that, yes, yes. And so that's what he kind of feel, fills the film with. And it finds levels of absurdity, but also humour, and the fact that, you know, continually acknowledges that we've made this, we want to see this, or at least these people feel that this is what people want. 
Right. They want themselves, but not exactly. Give the people what they want. Give the people... What is better if not films? You know? <laughs> it's just about not us. Fair enough, fair enough. So so that is uh, Family Romance, directed by Werner Herzog. And one last film, Paul, that you also mentioned to me before we came on air was Colour Out of Space. Yes, saw that today, actually. Okay. feel very buzzed about it. So Richard Stanley, some of you might know, this is his return to feature filmmaking after, I think, about 21 years after being sacked from the set of The Island of Dr. Moreau, which is an incredible uh, failure of Hollywood production in the 90s, absolute um, disaster piece. Mm. Um, and he's returned to Colorado Space, which is a Lovecraft adaptation of a short story starring Nicolas Cage. The central premise is that it's a family living in New England uh, and a meteor crashes into their yard. As the meteor starts to spread its radiation or whatever you want to call it throughout, things start to get a bit creepy, a bit strange the, the plantation the flora and the fauna start to distort and take on a kind of malicious tone right. and this little family who have kind of little passive aggressive moments with each other their internal warring aggressions against each other become more magnified as the vegetation around them becomes more and more abstract okay. so it's a very sort of like nuts and bolts kind of horror narrative it's everything i quite like about horror films kind of post 1970 onwards when horror kind of became the re- replacement for melodrama films is, is it the sort of horror film where you would hear that sort of thing in it <laughs> um, where did you even get that from? <laughs> I've got them coming out of my fingers, Paul. <laughs> um, maybe, maybe in certain moments. There's actually the soundtrack is actually fantastic. I think it's um, I'm going to get his name. I think it's Colin Stetson who does the soundtrack, and it's just this sort of droning tone that goes through a lot of it about like progressive sort of infection. But there are a lot of jump scares in it. It is kind of drive towards that. But why is interesting about it? About kind of I mean, Lovecraft is very po-faced writer very much about dread and portent mm. uh, but what Stanley and especially Cage kind of infuse into it is a very comedic element like it becomes a horror type of comedy first and foremost that is probably the genre or the fusion of genres it most closely resembles right uh, especially uh, Cage well this is what I'm going to was going to mention and this sounds like Cage is jumping on the success with Mandy which was mm. equally abstract and, and very comedic in places um, mm. you know we, we have the famous Cage a freak out moment in there as well but I, I, I really felt that Mandy whilst it had sort of two tier approach to it which was this very very interesting a narrative going on which everyone could sort of latch into but then there was also a, a subtext there that kind of ran all the way through of existentialism and what you what you would do for your family and all the rest of it going go, going on there and it I don't know Cage is obviously a, he's a very good actor and he does what he wants to do which I think I I lord him for. that's the thing which that's the thing though um cage for me is very enjoyable he's very enjoyable in this film i don't think it's a great performance from cage in all honesty okay. i think this you're talking about sort of he does what he wants to do and that's very apparent in this film and i think with mandy why it works so well is i think the abstract psychedelic quality of the film matched his performance I think he found a kind of harmonious energy with that. So it, you know, we, we described it at last year's festival that Mandy when it switches RPMs mm. in the middle of it becomes oh, yeah, like a record. Like, yeah, that goes from uh, thirty-three uh, RPM to forty-five. It goes from a LP to a single. Yeah, and it just like becomes a flurry and cage that like follows that. The thing, the odd thing with Color Space, that although it has different times going on, it has one mood going throughout it. He actually kind of replicates his voice from Vampire Kiss. If, if whoever's familiar with that, will kind of know it's a weird kind of like old Trumpian sort of like voice that he does. 
Right. He does it sort of like almost out of nowhere. It's, sort of, it's like a second persona that comes out of him. And you can see the experimentation going on, but he doesn't necessarily land the beats that you want it to. Okay. And he never gets quite back into the mode of it being a horror film. Like he's never grounded as the kind of dad that he was in the film's first half which I feel is a weakness of the movie. I think the supporting cast of it are actually fantastic. Yeah, we've got, um, we've got Julie Richardson in there, Tommy Chong, uh, a couple of other known faces that uh, probably a you know, commercial audience can 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 uh, have seen before. Um, but I think there's a lot of need for the supporting cast around him to sort of gravitate. But yeah, I think the big draw for this is one of the comments. There's a lot of alpacas in the film. And the word alpaca is used at least 10 times okay. in a very self-aware manner that he knows that the word alpaca is just ridiculous to say is this, um, is this going to become a meme then or something like it's, oh, it's already become a meme wow. it's already very grand in it i think every single review i've read of it has, has dropped the alpacas but it is so present okay it's so present he turns around there's, there's a line in it where he says um the, the door asks cage she says uh, why did we why did we buy alpacas why do we even have them they're useless and cage goes oh, they're the meat of the future. That's, and then the scene ends. And it's just like, what the hell does that even mean? <laughs> I don't even know so, what yeah, to say about that. Who knows? There's a scene where he milks one, and that becomes like his... He like he uses that as a kind of dominance to this new outsider. It's like, look at me milking this alpaca. Like, you know, wow. it's off the wall. Um, but it's very, very funny. It's very self-aware. I think it has a lot to say about repression, which is kind of bread and butter of the kind of melodramatic family horror film I think it's, it's about what we don't say to each other right. I think it's, it's it's kind of a good bookend to the year for us the Jordan Peele film yeah because again it's, it's kind of about this middle class family who are living in a kind of uh, unsaid excess to the not necessarily it's never said in this film to the um, detriment of others but it's kind of implied they're living off this land that they think they have a natural right to Right. Okay. Um, so, so I think if if you liked us, I think this is definitely worth checking out, and hopefully it's going to come out very soon. Yeah, um, I mean, it definitely sounds like it's it's one of these films. Where while it has these sort of abstract ideas under the hood, it, you know, it can play to quite a broad audience and uh, maybe a cult definitely. audience. Absolutely, um, both. I think it could play to a broad audience very easily. Yeah, it'd be um, one of these films you get on a sort of a Nicholas Cage retrospective sort of night playing it downstairs in the the Prince Charles cinema. I, I feel absolutely, that's, yeah, that's sort of the thing. So that's Color Out of Space, directed by Richard Stanley, starring Nicholas Cage amongst others, and actually. Before we even wrap things up here today, Paul, I shall put you out of your misery. The other film that my parents are going to see is Atomagoyan's latest film, which is called Guest of Honour. I have no idea why. Your parents, I'm sorry, but your parents are lit. Like, um, they, they have looked at this, haven't they? They've looked at this programme. Um, they're not going to the talk beforehand, sadly enough, but uh, <laughs> that is when we are going to have our wagamamas, apparently. But um, um, I'm, I'm accompanying them to see that film uh, at the BFI of, of an evening. So, there's, look, there's tons and tons of films in this brochure. You can find it online, you can pick up physical copies, but the London Film Festival is playing from the 2nd to the 13th of October. So if you're listening before those dates, do pop along, take a chance on something. You know, we've spoken about so many of these great films today that are peppering the, the headlines, but also some of the smaller films as well. Certainly the ones that you've seen as well, Paul. Um, well mm-hmm. worth 
grabbing a ticket for those, taking a chance, seeing something out of your comfort zone. You know, it's not all about Joker and all the big films trying to get your attention. Go and see something that will potentially move you, make you think, and maybe there's something a little bit deeper under the hood there. Paul, I want to say thank you so much for joining us on, on the podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I hope to have you back soon. That's okay. Thanks for having me on here. It's always nice to chat to you, Neil. I really hope to see you at the festival and Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey. (laughs) Well, you'll certainly see me at the festival. I'm not sure about those two. Um, (laughs) But um, where can people find you, Paul? Where can people read some of your fantastic work? The best way to find me is on Twitter, as is usually the case. Uh, I'm at in permafrost, all one word. Okay, and um, obviously I shall put all of Paul's details and where you can read some of his work in the podcast notes. All you have to do is tap the image on your podcast provider, flick up, and there's full podcast notes below that as well. If you want to get in contact with us, you can always add us on Twitter as well. We are at Filmseekers. We're on Facebook forward slash Filmseekers. We have an Instagram account that we kind of don't use, but we kind of use sometimes, and that is Filmseekers once again. And if you want to just send us a traditional email I say traditional um, you can send us an email hello at filmseekers.com so thanks to Paul Farrell for joining us today uh, we'll be back with the Film Seekers podcast when I get some friends who actually want to join me to talk about films and uh, hopefully Paul may be one of those people in the near future yes please oh there was a bit of silence there <laughs> that's fine I shall, take, <laughs> I shall take that as given um, thank you for listening today for our breakdown of the London Film Festival the 63rd one for 2019 we'll be back with the Film Seekers podcast in the near future. Thank you and goodbye. This episode has ended, but your film journey doesn't have to. Head over to filmseekers.com where you'll find more reviews, ideas, and news. We're also on Twitter and Facebook. Why not connect with us and let us be part of your film seeking adventure? 